Hey friends, welcome back to Josieology. I'm your host, Josie DeVidio, and today I have the privilege of chatting with decorated United States Army retired Colonel Angela M. Odom, who served in Operations Desert Storm, Desert Shield, and Iraqi Freedom. And we're going to be chatting about her experience as a high-ranking woman in the Army and her leadership training program called the Better You Project. Colonel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I want to let the listeners know that the colonel has given me permission to call her Angela, so I will be doing that. I just didn't want to come off as disrespecting her years of service because I do want to honor that. Listeners who know my background know that I am a dentist, and as part of my training, I served as chief resident at one of the VA medical centers here in Southern California. I did two years there. I had the privilege of caring for veterans from several different wars, actually, so I have a special place in my heart for our brave men and women who risk so much to serve their country. So, Miss Angela, thank you for your service. Mm, thank you. That's such a, such a beautiful sentiment. Thank you so much. In addition to being a decorated military person, you're also an accomplished published author. So I've been reading Bronco Strong, which is your first book, and I really enjoyed it. I think you did an excellent job relaying the story of your Bronco command and not just telling your perspective, but honoring the stories of your soldiers. And it was a really uh, beautifully written book. So I was happy to read that. I'm also going to put the link for that book on my show notes for this episode, as well as on my website. I have a little section called Josie's List. And if you click on that, it'll give you the option to click books and it'll be listed there because that's where I'm putting all the books that I love. So I would love to know what led you to the Army. In your book, you wrote that you were in the ROTC. Was that in high school or college? Uh, That was in college. I was brought up by my mom and dad in a house with really uh, people that would come for a day and stay for a year and decades, quite frankly. So there were six of us, six uh, kids, three girls and three boys. And my mom, I remember her telling me, you know, after that first year of college, she said, uh, baby, I'm sorry. I just, I can't help you financially. I was the baby girl. And I was like, what? So (laughs) I I, I marched right over to the ROTC department because I was uh, in uh, very good shape, you know, physical shape. And I was a decent student, uh, hardworking and all those things. And I knew, although as loving as my mom was, she was a disciplinarian. I knew I could not tell her that I was not going to get through school, you know, figure it out. So I was able, uh, fortunate enough, to get a three-year Army ROTC scholarship. So when I graduated from the University of Southern Mississippi, I graduated as a second lieutenant in the AG Corps, Adjutant General's Corps, which is human resources for you know people in the civilian sector. And so I graduated uh, being the homecoming queen, commissioned uh, second lieutenant, and walking away with a bachelor's degree. So That's why I started. It was because I had to figure out how to pay for college. And I'm very fortunate for the Army for getting me that start. You know, I have a similar, not exactly, but similar story in that when I was in dental school and I was getting ready to graduate, I was now starting to face how much, how big of a loan I was going to have to pay back. And I was like, oh, man what did I do? You know, like now it's too late. I've already spent the money. And at the time we had military recruiters come to the school and 
you know, you can go obviously into the military and serve as a dentist. So I thought, well, maybe I'll do that. Mm. And so I really was seriously considering that. And, um, you know, I think it's an honor to serve our country. My parents are Italian immigrants. They came here for the American dream to have a good life. My dad, you know, in Italy, education is completely different. My dad went to third grade. My mom went to fifth grade. So for them to have their daughter get so far as to go to a professional school like dental school, that was the fulfillment of the American dream for them. So for me, I had no problem serving my country and a country that they loved so much in that way. I went and I looked into it and I got all the information. I, you know, called my dad and he almost had a heart attack that I was considering doing that. And we had a very in-depth conversation of how that was not going to happen. So if it was up to me, I would have completely have served him that way. But my family put the kibosh on that for a variety of reasons. So I really admire that you did get the opportunity to do that. And I will just, uh, you know, back up to when I was just a few years ahead of that uh, my mom, again, a disciplinarian, I joined the um, Army Reserves first as a you know, 17, 18-year-old kid. And I did it as, a, as a, a, a bonding experience with one of my classmates, my high school classmates. We went to basic training together. So initially, I'd gone to my mom and I said, hey, you know, I don't want to continue to be a burden on you, so I'm going to join the Reserves. And she was like, no, and stop it. We're not talking about this. And I was like, what does she mean? We're not talking about it. We always talk about everything. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I, um, I actually uh, waited for my birthday cause I needed her signature, you know, prior to that time I waited for my birthday. And then a week after that, I signed the papers myself. And I'm not sure if in your Italian household, you understand what a beat down is. Oh yes. <laughs> well, that's what I got. <laughs> Oh, yes. You and I are both from back in the day where that was common practice. <laughs> yeah. So after uh, after I actually uh, got through that, uh, she changed the way she saw everything. She actually attended my basic training graduation and was, uh, you know, was proud and pleased. And then, you know, a couple of years forward, did go to college because that was her fear that I would not uh, go to college. Right. And so, you know, when she moved forward, and she was like, yeah, okay, we're all in. We're all in now after all of that. <laughs> so, so that's how moms work. I guess they evolve just like you know, everybody else. Now, I want to back up a little bit because you, you said it in passing, but I found this fascinating in your book. You were voted homecoming queen at the yes. University of Southern Mississippi, yes. which happens to be the same school where football player Brett Favre was a freshman at the time, correct? Yes. So yeah. I thought that was kind of fun. Now, yeah. this is what I found fascinating. When you were voted homecoming queen, there was a segment of people that did not like that very much. Oh, yeah. I mean, I grew up in, in the heart of the South. And so, you know, it is what it is. People uh, are used to being separated and, you know, diminishing other people for whatever reasons, you know, color, gender, all those things. And people pretty much don't like change. So I had grown up in a home where I was always told that I mattered, that I always felt loved, happy. And really, um, my mom and my dad pretty much sheltered my siblings and I from all of really the ugliness and harshness of the world. And so when I got to uh, Southern Miss, you know, I had a blast. I'm going to tell you, like the college life, 
Oh my God, it was wonderful. I never missed a class. And quite frankly, Josie, I never missed a party. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that's my kind of person right there. <laughs> <laughs> I had a great time and my classmates uh, voted me the second Black homecoming queen uh, in the history of the University of Southern Mississippi. I remember one of the interviews, uh, someone asking me about the, the Ku Klux Klan marching downtown Hattiesburg on Main Street and protests of me. I said to them, what? Who cares what a bunch of old men, <laughs> right. old men are protesting a college student? They don't have anything to do with what the college students vote on. So for me, it was a nuisance or annoyance. It was not my issue. Right. I brushed it off and continue to have fun because, I mean, I don't know if you've been to uh, the South. All the homecomings are, are a blast in the South. So that went on to having fun. So it was not my issue to hold on to. And that's one of the things that I appreciate about you is that when I first chatted with you, you said to me that you don't get easily offended because I had asked you, is there anything off limits that I cannot ask? And you said no, and you don't get easily offended, which I love because I don't get easily offended. And I really think that more people need to be like that. Like you said, that issue was their issue, not your issue. And moving forward, you didn't let that experience change the trajectory of your life. Uh, you didn't let it embitter you. You didn't let it like take root as a personal attack against you. And that's really the mark of a strong character because you have to know who you are and stand in your purpose and not let other people's crazy ideas affect you in order to move forward. And that's pretty profound. And that's pretty profound at the age that you were too. I mean, now as, you know, women in our 40s, we can have a little bit more wisdom and look back and say, oh, maybe I should have said this or done that or ignored this. But for you to have that at that age, I think says a lot about your character and how you were raised. Well, you know, I appreciate that. And, and quite frankly, my validation came from, I am a mama's girl, although my mom passed away a few years ago. So she's the one that I cared what she thought and what she would say. Quite frankly, everybody else was like, mm, okay, you said that. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. <laughs> so so I, I'm just grateful that she uh, nurtured and poured the right things in me. And that was that I mattered. And every place I was, was where I was supposed to be. And so that's what, that's what I grew up believing. So let's get into your experience in the army a little bit. I understand from reading your book, Bronco Strong, that you were moved around a lot to develop yourself as a leader. So in your career progression, you were being moved around to different parts of not just the States, but out in the theater of war. Tell me about that, because first of all, what's it like to be a woman in the army? I think it's like uh, being a woman anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I think most women undervalue themselves. What I've come to understand is that we are all more alike than we are different. And so in the military, in the army, you know, you get entry level employees basically coming in and just a little bit, you know, intimidated by uh, the concept of leading other people and really controlling have an influence over their livelihoods and their life. And so whether that's man, woman, and whatever your background might be, that's huge. Uh, so as far as being a woman in a male-dominated environment where really the power structure is, you know, he counts and you got to figure it out. Unless you uh, understand that really it's about relationships, it's about how you're going to grow a team and how you show up you know, with integrity and the intent to add value. Uh, and that took me a while to really to come to understand that it did not, it wasn't that I was a woman, it was that I had doubt. 
that I could do whatever that was. At the same time, you know, everyone around you is is trying to figure it out. I just didn't know that, at, you know, when I first came into the Army. Everybody has issues and doubts and worries. It's just that some big chest, good looking guy in a uniform, he carries it differently than I might. And right. so everybody's trying to get to the next level. It's just some people are team players and some are not. And that's just like everywhere, like you said. I mean, you know, that's in the workforce, that's in your community. And I think what you said right just now is really deep for me. Like, it's not the, you know, there's still a lot of, oh, I'm going to get a lot of email about this, but there's still a lot of women <laughs> who are like playing the victim a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I've never really understood that because like for me, I, I'm as a dentist in a predominantly male career when I was growing up. Now it's about 50-50. But coming, you know, I've been doing dentistry for 22 years. And so when I started, it was a predominantly male centered career. And I kind of always would forget that I was a female until someone pointed it out to me. Mm -hmm. In other words, I didn't go into life thinking, oh, I'm a female. What are people going to do to me or say about me or whatever? I was just doing Josie and, you know, figuring it out and doing it the best I could. And so I think if more women would just kind of like embrace their inherent power and learn how to develop it and learn how to present it to the world, we don't, we wouldn't have to really worry about the whole women thing. Like that's like, that becomes a non-issue. It's about your skill set and how you're moving forward in the world and using it in the world. So, so for me, I was very fortunate to have uh, my two professional standards, uh, which was my uh, battalion commander at the time, white male, who just happened to be uh, a graduate of University of Southern Mississippi. And then my um, mentor, one of my mentors who was, she and her husband both in the military and they had three little girls and they were both, uh, you know, on a career track, you know, to, to be movers and shakers. I was able to watch how she didn't have to lose who she was to, to still be in charge or to move forward. I was able to watch how she engaged with her husband and her children and still, you know, got up the next day or the middle of the night, whatever that was, to do her job, her military job. And then at the same time, I was able to watch my battalion commander, how he engaged with his male lieutenants, his female lieutenants, his black lieutenants, his white lieutenants, his Hispanic lieutenants. And it was all the same. He was like, y'all better get to work. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I know for sure that uh, my two professional standards helped shape the way I was able to, you know, move through the military in my career because I, I just know that I was blessed to have them first. And the expectation from both of them, for me, for Angie Odom, was to take care of soldiers and be a person of integrity, have really good work ethic. And then they both taught me in their own way that it was okay to not get things right. But you know, I could not, not get it right two or three times in a row. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So I, I, I think sometimes it, it is uh, the environment, the way you are nurtured and the way you are taught and what you see. Uh, so, so for those women you mentioned that might have a mindset of victimization, and then it is a result, I believe, of the environment they started out in. And that's how they survive or that's how they think they should to be able to move forward. So I was just fortunate that my very first duty station, my assignment there working with those two uh, leaders is what helped me, you know, move forward. In addition to my two personal standards, which are my two Hatties, my grandmother, uh, my father's mom, 
and my mom, both named Hattie. Wow. And so because of them, my upbringing, uh, you know, you just do the right thing. Treat people like you want to be treated, like for real, treat them that way. Right. And then you get up and you had better add value. That was the way my mom thought you're supposed to operate in the world. You're supposed to help folks and add value. (laughs) Right. In fact, I love the story in your book about how you came home on leave to visit with your mom and you were kind of bragging about your experience that you got to drop a soldier. Um, So explain to the listeners what that means. I was a second lieutenant and that means my entry level position in the army. That was a rank I held. I had been in the army at the time, uh, Josie, you're referring to maybe a year and a half. And so in the environment, I was at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, which is home on the airborne. It is where uh, men are men, as they want to say. You know, they they are ready to rock and roll and go and be anywhere in the world uh, within 72 hours, right? And so these uh, men and women are focused. It's the mentality of being physically fit, being technically competent. The leadership style of some is directive. And so I was just fitting into that mold. And so a soldier... Uh, I don't know. I don't know if it was like a uniform violation or something. It was something small, to be quite honest. Um, But I was, you know, getting in uh, just like my peers, my male peers. I saw them do it. I was like, oh, I could do that. So I dropped the soldier, which means I told the soldier to drop, which means you do push-ups until I I tell you to stop, right? And so um, uh, as I would do, I would make that ride from North Carolina to Mississippi, especially if we had a three or four day weekend. And, you know, I would call ahead of time. My mom's going to cook my favorite food and I'm going to get to see family and friends and all that. And so when I got there and I was sitting there talking to my mom and I was saying, Mama, go, I dropped this soldier. Oh, it was so cool. And I was going on and on about it. And the more I talked about it, I watched her face and she was not smiling. She was not engaged. She was not happy. Josie, she was pissed off. (laughs) (laughs) So I said, whoa, what's going on? And she said, that's not how I raised you. And I was like, what are you talking about? That's how everybody does it. She was like, no, not everybody. That's not how I raised you. If that's what you're doing in that army, then you need to get out. I was like, what are you talking about? what I do? She said, so what did you teach that soldier? That right there could be you, that could be your brother, that could be your cousin. So if you're not going to teach and help people build them up, Angela, then what are you doing? I didn't teach you that. I felt about, you know, two inches tall because I had become like a willow tree, someone who goes with the wind, blowing with them, rocking with them, as opposed to an oak tree standing strong and tall as she had taught me. And so when I went back to Fort Bragg, I had a shift. And I realized that if I was to stay, then I was to teach, train, mentor, coach, to uplift and to be someone uh, that would be respected. And so that's what I did. I said, you know, I'm a baby girl and I will never, ever do anything to uh, dishonor her and to uh, have her to look at me that way. Again, I'm a mama's girl. Yeah. I love that story. I think that's a beautiful story because it speaks to her heart and that you can still be true to yourself and be a good leader and be providing value to your fellow man, you know, and that's important. I mean, that's what we're here for. And that story really is the shift of, you know, leading you to this point where you are today with the Better You Project. So I just love that story so much. Now, before we dive into the Better You Project, uh, you had mentioned that one of your mentors had three daughters. I know that you yourself had a child 
child while you were serving in the military. So what is that like? My curiosity is, how do you have a baby while you're you're in the military? Like, is there daycare there? Like, how does that work? (laughs) Oh, you asked a really good question. So for... (laughs) Yes. Yes. To answer answer your question, there is, Josie, you have a baby just like you have a baby everywhere. I actually, for, I guess, years and years, I was so busy moving every one to three years that I woke up one day and I was like, (laughs) I want to be somebody's mama. Yeah. (laughs) You know? And I have, I have to thank my boss at the time because he asked me, he says, what do you do when you're not at work? I was like, what are you talking about? I work all the time. I don't, and there's nothing. What else am I supposed to do? This is what I do. Because we had been going back and forth to the Middle East, you know, traveling and just craziness. So it was as if I had been blindfolded for the first 10 years of my army career. And I was so grateful that he lifted that veil and said, get a life, lady. <laughs> <laughs> And so that's what I did. And so for women and men who have children in the military, you know, you still have to perform your mission. However, uh, you have on most military installations, there are daycare centers. There are some uh, elementary schools on and, of course, near the near those army posts. And there's some people that are not working on military installations. And so you make uh, you make a way just like you do any place else. You make arrangements. And there is um, what's called a family care plan. So soldiers, airmen, Marines, you know, uh, everyone else uh, must complete what's called a family care plan. And that is if you are deployed or if you are to work extensively uh, overnight away from your kids, then who is going to care for them by name, notarized documents? What's your plan? And so if you might just have to go on a field exercise for two days or three days, well, where's your kid going to be? That's serious stuff because uh, either people have said, oh, yeah, sure, I'll take care of little Johnny if you, you need to go away for a couple of days. But those couple of days sometimes turn into months. Like for me, my son was 14 months old when I left him for 14 months. So when I was a battalion commander, the deployment to Iraq was a 15-month deployment. And so I was fortunate enough because I'm a single parent. I was fortunate that my niece who was a newlywed with her sweet giant of a husband, agreed. Actually, they asked me (laughs) uh, to take care of my son and they raised him. I loved him, cared for him uh, all that time. And his little self, he's 14 years old now. So he doesn't even remember that period, that time period. And here I am still suffering with the guilt of leaving my baby for 14 months. So to answer your question, Josie, how do you do it? You make arrangements and you think it through just like any other parent would do, you know, that are not in uniform. You just do what you have to do for your kids. My understanding is you don't really have a choice, right? I mean, if they tell you you're going to Iraq as part of your next, you know, mission, it's not like you can say, well, I want to stay home with my baby, right? So that's the difference. I mean, you don't have a choice. You have to you have to go. So the choice really is that you go or you are disciplined and that would most likely lead to you being uh, removed from service. So you right. do have a choice. You do have a choice. It just, do you really want to deal with the consequences? Now, I loved the story in your book about when your niece was painting her toenails. Oh, you got to make me cry. <laughs> I know. I got choked up reading it. In the military, you you are in uniform and there's a certain standard for wearing your uniform with one out, nail polish, you know, hair length, all those things. There's just standards. And so for me, I would paint my toenails red, bright red. That's what I liked. 
And that would be, of course, in my boots. So no one, of course, would know that or see it except for the people, you know, my personal friends and my son, of course. And so when I left his little cute self, uh, my niece, I, who I would call, uh, and this was before Facebook and FaceTime and, uh, you know, all this other social media, this was a phone call. And I actually, um, at this particular time, I thought, well, maybe I'll just be able to leave a voicemail for her and she'll listen later just to let him hear my voice. And she picked up and she said, oh my goodness, I had to stop your son. I thought he was calling me mama. I said, what are you talking about? So she says, uh, you know, she's painting her toenails and she noticed that my son kept walking over to her and he was wobbly walking and he was saying, mama toes, mama toes. And she said she didn't understand it. Then she kept correcting him. No, no, not mama. And then she listened and she said, uh, that little boy said mama toes and she just hollered right there, realizing that, you know, even at that young age, uh, that was an impression on him. His mama has red toes. (laughs) That is so cute. (laughs) And so when I heard her say that, I was a mess. You hear me? (laughs) It was a blubbering (laughs) mess because I I was missing all of the small, very important parts of his life. And so uh, again, he's 14 now. You know, he's a wholesome, happy, healthy uh, young man. So praise goodness for that. You have some videos on your Better You Project Facebook page or group. I don't remember which one it was in, but you recount a story about struggling with having to leave your son to go into the theater of war, mm. but that you were called to go. And I thought that was a beautiful story. I remember the feeling, the struggle of having to decide what I should do. And so I was notified that I would uh, serve as a battalion commander. And that was like the culmination. That's what I wanted. I wanted to lead soldiers. I wanted to be the one to provide the vision for them and you know, guidance. And so I was told, hey, you have the opportunity to command a battalion. And I was like, whoa, this is great. And then my branch manager, he said, and it's in Iraq. Your unit is preparing to deploy right now. And he said, you have 24 hours. You have a day to let me know whether or not, because I just paused right there and I was like, oh, what? what?" (laughs) 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 And so uh, I went back to my office, closed the door, and I literally slid down the wall, slid down the wall, my back to the wall. And I was found myself sitting on the floor uh, knowing that I was the one to go to lead to serve uh, my soldiers in this capacity at this time. This was, it was, I felt like this is what I was supposed to do. And I had been built and trained to do it. However, I had a little boy (laughs) who I had prayed to God to be his mama. And so I called uh, my niece because uh, just a few months earlier, she at her wedding, I was just at her wedding, and she, out the blue, said to me, you know, she says, hey, if um, if you ever need me and keep to raise Ryan or to keep him or something happens, then, you know, hey, just give us a call. It was just a casual, out of the blue comment. And so so while I was crying and snotting and all of that, I um, I asked her, I said, so are you, were you serious about that comment? And she said, of course. Yeah, of course I'm serious. I said, but you're married now. <laughs> so <Right. laughs> ask your husband. She was like, I don't have to ask him. I said, oh, yeah. Oh, yes, you do. You have to ask your husband if you and he can watch, love, comfort a little boy, a baby. You have to ask your husband. 
And so, and so she did. And, you know, he said, of course, and that, you know, that starts that journey of that 15 month appointment to Iraq. And in the video, you had mentioned that you also knew that while you had to leave your son, there were many soldiers who were going to be under your command who were leaving their kids. Oh, yeah. So how could I possibly say no, knowing that, knowing that so many women were in the same predicament and had to make the same choices and had to had to sacrifice much more than me. And so I said, OK, God, I see it. You need someone there in this hostile environment that can actually relate, that they can relate to, and they, they can know that their sacrifice is a shared experience. And perhaps that would give them some semblance of hope. That is really how it went. I'm still in contact with several of those uh, soldiers, men and women, and their spouses uh, after all those years. Now, Americans who are not in the military likely don't realize how involved military operations are. I mean, we have a picture based on the movies we see or things the news tells us. But the way I understand it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is there's basically two different kinds of soldiers. This is how my simple brain is going to explain it. So there's the war fighters, the people who are, you know, on the front lines. And then there is the kind of soldier that is running everything so that the war fighters don't have to be distracted by everything else that needs to be done in order to survive when you're abroad. And what we hear about on the news or even in the movies is typically related to the war fighters. And it's largely kind of, I don't know if ignored is the right word, but it's not recognized as well as it should be that the uh, soldiers who are supporting the mission are in just as much danger as the war fighters, which is evident in the account of the night when you went to a worship service on base and your base was attacked. Right. The uh, the missiles don't know whether you're support personnel or whether you are infantry armor. They don't know whether you're male or female. The bullets hit and killed and maimed the same. And yes, you did a great job of explaining your concept of military operations. And really, so we have uh, war fighters. And, and so now, you know, of course, the military would say that everyone's a war fighter. However, there are specialties that that's what they really do. That is, their mission is to go out and seek the enemy. Whereas for human resources personnel, of course, we have to be able and capable of shooting and, you know, defending ourselves, but that is not all of what we do. So for human resources personnel, of course, in Iraq, we were responsible for casualty accountability and for replacement operations, for postal operations, and, you know, for so many other administrative functions. Right. I mean, you're also responsible for making sure that you have the supplies that the warfighters need, that, you know, medically they're being cared for, that all their needs are met so that literally the, you know, frontline warfighter just has to get up and focus on the mission. They don't have to worry about who's going to do their laundry when they get back. Really, you guys are allowing the whole operation to function seamlessly. As it should be. Right. And you're also in harm's way. Definitely. You know, so it's that's something that I think it's lost in translation in our Hollywood movies and 
in our news telling because unless there's a casualty or something that happens, they kind of forget to tell us that all of that is really going on in the background. So in the book, you talk specifically about that. You talk about the attack that happened while you were on base. You beautifully told the story of your soldiers who were lost in that attack. And so, you know, I want to really encourage my listeners to pick up Bronco Strong um, if you're interested in the story, because it's such a great book for that. And thank you for writing it, for honoring those people in that way. Thank you. I I really appreciate you taking the time to read the book and to share the significance of the sacrifices that so many military personnel and their families endure. And most will tell you that they do it again. And so thank you for that. As you mentioned, the reason I wrote the book, I was compelled to write Bronco Strong was because I needed to make sure that those two soldiers, Staff Sergeant Lillian Clemens and Sergeant First Class John J. Tobiason, were not just numbers. They were killed in Iraq and they died uh, knowing that they could. It's just the pain of the loss is just uh, sometimes unconsolable. So I wrote the book with the help and support of some of the soldiers who uh, were deployed with us. And so that we would always acknowledge that every soldier, whatever capacity they serve, however long they serve, whatever um, their circumstances were, that they matter, that they count. Angela, when we come back, we're going to talk about how your experience led you to the Better You Project. So Angela, in Bronco Strong, you talk about the different kinds of leadership that you learned from. And uh, you learned about what to do and what not to do, right? And then you talked about your mom, Miss Hattie, and how she basically brought you back to who you were and then, you know, kind of guided you to become a leader through your own natural inclination. So tell us about how you're using what you've learned and now directing that to the Better You Project. What is the Better You Project? Most women undervalue themselves. So I created a system, a success system to help them grow their personal leadership skills so they can show up with confidence in their workspace and in their social environments. For me, what I would want women to do and men, I want them to serve and I want them to serve. And I mean that I want them to serve from the overflow. And I want them to build their personal leadership skills as they are serving others. Understand that, you know, most people I talk to, which I'm, it really just shocks me. Most people don't even think they're, they have leadership skills or capabilities. They don't know that they're actually influencing people just by being. And so we can not label it or label it. And so, and we all have uh, skills, and that is uh, the capability to perform a particular task, you know, competently. And so, those skills help us to accomplish whatever it is. It might be in someone's mind uh, minimized and small. However, we're still accomplishing things, and so that's that's what the Better You Project is about. It is uh, helping women, that is, emerging women leaders, first of all, recognize the approach they use. And that is our style, leadership style, the approach we use as we are engaging with others. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I was initially watching people be so direct (laughs) and using authoritative methods to get people to do what they want, not necessarily being respected as they were doing it, not really influencing. They were merely in the position and people were doing what they requested only when they were watching. And so what I have learned after serving 27 years in the army is I want to be the type of leader that when I am not standing there with my thumb on your head, 
that you are, first of all, capable and willing to still perform the mission with excellence because that's who you are and that's how you want to show up. And so what I've learned is that it is better to lead with respecting people and you know, meeting people where they are. So that's what I learned in the Army. And so the Better You Project is really about helping women recognize their own value and what they bring to every organization in every uh, culture and every uh, circumstance. We all have something to give. And I agree that you are influencing people All of us, all of our listeners, me and you are influencing people, whether we recognize it or not. So people will watch us, will learn from us, and it could be positive or it could be negative. So we have to be mindful of what we're putting out because it is influencing someone. And, you know, I think it was also interesting in your book, you mentioned that you learned how leaders should lead, but also how followers should be teachable and humble because there was a point where uh, in your younger years where you were maybe a little cocky or a little (laughs) offended um, that you were being taught or corrected, right? Yes, yes, yes. I, uh, you know, I, I, what I felt was, Hey, I already know this. I already know how to do this. Who are you talking to? (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, arrogance is not a good look. And it's not a good feel for me. And it's and it's really not uh, it's not effective in my case. It wasn't an effective way to to lead and influence people. You're right. It's not a good look. No one looks at anyone who's arrogant and says, oh, yeah, that's great. (laughs) You know, it's not good. But unfortunately, when you're arrogant or cocky or what I like to say is like not coachable or not teachable, you're harming yourself because you're not allowing yourself the opportunity to learn and grow. You know, you can't possibly know everything. I think that's a problem of a lack of wisdom. Like younger people tend to have this problem. (laughs) You know, as you get older, you realize more and more that you don't know what you don't know. But it is important, not just as a leader, because even when you are a leader, you are still following someone. You still have people above you that you continue to learn from, at least wise leaders do, right? Because again, we can't all know everything. So I think that's an important distinction that you made in the book that not only is there a certain way to be a leader that is congruent with your personal style, but you have to also learn how to be a follower and a learner. No, definitely. And the fact that you don't even have to like the people that are leading you. I think sometimes we get confused and think, well, I don't, I don't like that person. Who cares if you like them or not? <laughs> you can still learn from them. And that could be, you know, the good, the bad or the ugly. You can still uh, learn um, how to carry yourself from someone who is, you know, not a good person. You can still learn from them. And so for me, that was most of my struggle is that if I did not respect the person, then I did not feel that I had to listen to them, nor did I have to follow their guidance. And I tell you what, that is caca cuckoo crazy because life does not work that way. You know, we're all in this big old mixing pot and it is just incredulous to believe that every single person is going to be, you know, a good fit for you. Still, you respect those people, especially if they're in a position of authority, then you respect the rank or the position and you get the job done because most likely you will have other people depending on you. You will have teammates, peers, you will have someone that's saying, okay, okay, boss, Okay, ma'am. Okay, team lead. Okay, uh, director. I want to be able to go and get my credentialing. And and you're blocking it because you're arrogant. (laughs) 
Right. So you have to think about more than yourself in most of those situations. Uh, So it's just not about you most of the time. That's the other thing I've come to realize. It is just not about me. And there's so many other people that, that you have to think about and consider how your actions, how my actions impact other people's lives and livelihood. So get over it. <laughs> so. Right. And that's a good point. You know, I think we've lost that in this generation. Well, you know, I'm starting to sound old now because I can relate yeah. like this generation <laughs> to my generation. Kelsey, yes, you, you are. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like the younger generations kind of stuck on that, that it's like, well, I don't like you, so I don't have to listen to you. No, that's not how it works. <laughs> You can still, like you said, learn from them and grow. And guess what? You can even decide to learn more, learn enough to become, you know, replace that leader. Fine. You don't like how they're doing it. You build up your skill set. You replace the leader that you don't like. You lead now. But guess what? As the leader, now you will have people under you who may not like you. So it's not always going to be like peaches and cream. Part of having a strong skill set and being a strong leader is learning how to lead people, ones that like you is easy, but the ones that don't like you, you still got to lead them and be effective at that. Yes. One of my uh, peers who I've known for 30 years, we were second lieutenants together in the military, uh, the army, the rank structure, you know, second lieutenant, first captain, major, lieutenant colonel, colonel, then army, general officers. And so uh, when we were second lieutenants, you know, we would often say, we still have to lead the, the ones, even the ones we don't like. And, you know, you have to be fair to everyone. And you have to coach, teach, mentor, provide resources for, communicate with everyone the same way, same intensity, even the ones that uh, you see are a challenge. And so that's men, women, whatever your hang up is with that individual. (laughs) You have to get out of your own way and an effective leader wants to actually grow leaders and not grow followers. And so since you are the one that they're looking to to lead, then they're looking to see if you're going to be fair to everyone. Now, tell us uh, how the Better You Project looks. Is this courses that you're providing, like seminars in person? Is this something that you do online? Explain to us a little bit more about that. Oh, it's a mixture of um, online uh, courses and workshops and uh, speaking opportunities. I have a in-person one-day workshop coming up here in the Atlanta area. It's called Learn How to Lead. We're going to go through determining what the individuals actually want. Because, you know, sometimes if you're anything like me and and you have strong parental influences, then you might be doing your whatever your your, um, specialty is. You might be doing it because your parents or your family members said, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. That's what you should do. (laughs) Right. And so uh, we want to make sure that, first of all, we know what we want. And so that's what we're doing. And then um, a strategy to go go out and get it. We'll look at, uh, you know, how leaders actually develop their vision. And we'll come out of that thing with uh, every person attending. Uh, we'll have their own individual strategy, uh, their action plan for, for getting what they want, you know, to manifest in their own life. As far as their leadership and personal leadership skills, what do they have to do? How do they have to show up to get what they want? So we have a mixture of in-person workshops and online trainings and also group coachings. And I do a little bit of one-on-one coaching and that's for individuals that are in my year-long Better You book club, which is all focused on leadership uh, books. We do six books in a year, every um, 
every 45 days, you know, we focus on one book. Uh, you know, we go through that and every seven days within that time period, you get, you know, email reading prompts. And then once a month we get and we, we dig all into um, the book itself and how, um, you know, we can use those skills, those lessons in our own individual lives. And so it's a mixture. And that's a great question. Thank you for that. Yeah. Now, if my listeners want to learn more, they can find you. AngelaOdom.com. And that's O-D-O-M. So AngelaOdom.com. On Facebook, it is uh, Angela M. Odom, uh, the Facebook page. We have a group, the Better You Project community. And that's, you know, a closed group. And we invite your listeners to join. Uh, and it is uh, filled with women and probably about 2% men. Some brave men are in there too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and I've enjoyed what I've done so far on there. I, I'm going to spend more time in there being active because you have a lot of great info in there. I know you're also on Instagram. Yes. What is your handle on Instagram? So it is the, uh, the underscore, the little small slash, the better you project. So if, you know, depending on what my listeners, where they like to hang out, you're, you're on Facebook and Instagram, or you can go to her website, AngelaOdom.com. Yes. And for Josie, for, um, for your listeners who are, you know, looking to determine, well, what's my leadership style? I do have, you know, just a quick nine common leadership styles that they might just take a look at and they just go to AngelaOdom.com forward slash leader type, and they can just take a look at that one page PDF. And it'll give them an inclination, an idea of the type of leader, the style that they have, how they approach others and engage with others. Awesome. Great. Now, in addition to Bronco Strong, you also have another book called Camouflage Sisters. Tell us about that. So this is a a leadership anthology that is a collaborative effort. So 12 senior military women, each of us wrote one chapter. And so the title of my chapter is Beyond Competence. And I just focus in on my two professional standards, again, uh, my battalion commander and my uh, mentor. And the fact that although I was competent, uh, you know, as a second lieutenant, it just wasn't enough to be an effective leader. And I learned that through engagement with my own leaders, understanding that I had to build relationships that actually mattered, that I had to, um, you know, as always have integrity. My integrity has never been questioned. And so I had to actually get to know my soldiers and to influence them by sharing my own technical knowledge, my background, and, you know, getting my hands dirty. So that's what I learned when I was a second lieutenant. So when I was a battalion commander in Iraq, I just reached back for those same stories, those same lessons, and was able to apply those as, uh, you know, a seasoned leader those years later. So that's what Camouflage Sisters, uh, my particular uh, chapter is about. And I am really proud of this project to be uh, affiliated and associated with this Camouflage Sisters brand. Now, I like to leave my listeners with some actionable steps, a mindset shift, something that will impact their lives. So is there anything you want to leave the listeners with? I want them to know that whatever it is they intend to do, uh, you know, they say, well, you know, I want to run a marathon. Well, runners run. I hear people say, oh my goodness, I'm working on my book. I've been thinking about it. Well, writers write. People say, well, oh my, I don't, I'm not sure about all this conflict at work. I, you know, I'm just not going to say anything. Well, guess what? Leaders lead. And so that's what I would lead you with is whatever direction is tugging at you to go in, take that first step. You don't need to see, like if you're going up a staircase, you don't need to see the top of the staircase to get there. All you need to do is to take the next step. 
concentrate, focus on taking the next step. And then guess what? Once you have mastered that and you understand what you need to do, then take the next step. And so that's what I would leave your uh, audience with. You don't have to have the full view right this second. It will evolve over time. You will gain more confidence by action as opposed to thinking about it. So do it. Go for it. Run your race. Write your book. Lead. Lead, lead, lead. Awesome. Colonel, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your story. I am a huge fan of yours. You have that energy that attracts people. So I'm looking forward to getting to know you even more through the Better You Project group on Facebook. I want to encourage my listeners to find me there and let's interact there and let's learn from the Colonel because what she's talking about is something that all women need to hear. All women need to harness their natural power that they have and just lead with that. So if you want to learn more about the Colonel, you can visit her website, AngelaOdom.com. You can follow her on Facebook, Angela M. Odom. You can join the Better You Project's Facebook group or find the Better You Project on Instagram. And I'm going to have all of these links in the show notes for this episode. One thing that struck me was that Angela in Italian means angel. <laughs> and for a lot of people I know, based on the story you recounted in Bronco Strong, based on the work that you're doing now, you are people's angels. So continue with the good work that you have been doing and that you were born to do. Thank you so much. Thank you, Josie. 